Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word, which is a living and active thing, a sword that pierces between bone and marrow, between spirit and soul, whatever that means. It pierces into the finest distinctions of our hearts, the very heart of who we are, where we didn't even know we are. Lord, your word is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Lord, penetrate us deeply now with your grace, your strength, your presence, your powerful presence. May your presence fill us, Lord, by your spirit, we pray in Christ's victorious name. Amen. Well, we've seen a series of commands in chapter 6 here, verses 10 through, through 20 in particular. There's five commands, as we saw last week. The first command is to be strengthened in the strength of the Lord's might, which means, as he goes on to explain, another command to put on the full armor of God. Or he says it again, to, to take up the full armor of God. He repeats his command so that we might stand. And then there is uh, that fourth command to having put on the armor, having put on the belt of, right, of truth and the, the breastplate of righteousness and having shod our feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace and taking up the shield of faith, we are to stand is the fourth command. And there's a fifth command, and that is to take or to receive. Namely, to receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit from God, a defensive and an offensive bit of armor, the helmet and the sword. The, the two verbs that stand out in the heart of our uh, text, verses 18 through 20, are the verbs praying and watching. These modify the command to receive. So how are we to receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit? With all praying and all watching. What does it mean to receive the helmet of salvation with all prayer and alertness? It means, in short, to live into our salvation, to wrap our little hearts and minds around our salvation to lean into our great hope. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he uses this armory metaphor again. And he says, since we belong to the day, let's be sober-minded, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but he's destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're alive in this life or we're dead in the ground, we will live with him. That is what it means to don the helmet of salvation, to receive it prayerfully. It's to have our heads in the clouds of heaven that we might be so heavenly minded in this war we'll finally be of some earthly good. To do this is to live and breathe in the air of heaven, to inhale hope and breathe out praise and petition, to utter spirit-empowered prayers with our feet firmly planted on this broken ground. It is to live, as it were, in the capital-S spirit of prayer, especially in our gardens of Gethsemane. It is to be enlivened and alert to the presence and power of God even in the dark, especially in the dark. 
It is to be swept up into his movement heavenward, to be blown in his breeze, to be lifted heavenward by him. It is to take in hand his instruments of peace, weapons of mass instruction and healing, including especially the sword of the Spirit. With all prayer, we grasp the sword of the Spirit which he describes and defines as the word of truth. The word for word there is relatively rare word. Elsewhere in chapter one, verse 13, he describes the word of truth that saved us. There he uses the typical word, logos. Here he uses the word rhema. Rhema is a synonym for logos, but it tends to nuance and emphasize the wordiness of the word. The word-like nature of it, it's not just a message, it is the words with which the message is conveyed. It is the spoken word. When Jesus was tempted, when Jesus was was waging war with the devil in the wilderness, the devil was so bold as to come at him with scripture itself and to use scripture against him. And what was Jesus' response? He quoted scripture right back. All from Deuteronomy, interestingly enough. But when Satan tempted him to turn these stones in his fasting state into bread, he says, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every rhema that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is our great weapon, the word of God in our mouths, because it's first in our hearts. It's our instinctual prayer, our instinctual reaction and response. It was how Jesus waged war. The prophecy of a coming Messiah notes this In Isaiah's prophecy, on the screen you'll see from Isaiah 11, he shall not judge by what his eyes see. I believe we have it on the screen. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That's not because he's got stank breath. It's because his breath is so good, it gives life. And it destroys death. Righteousness shall be the belt of his way. Sound familiar? Faithfulness, or the synonym, truth, will be the belt of his loins. In Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Paul describes the return of Christ destroying this man, mysterious man of sin by the sword coming from his mouth, which John also describes in his apocalypse. By the breath of his mouth, by the sword of the Spirit, Jesus conquers, and so do you and I. In fact, we were told to shod our feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Paul, again, is thinking Isaiah. Isaiah 52 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news of peace. 
And when he describes Israel's service to render this good news, to declare and preach this good news on the mountain, Isaiah writes, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word, the rhema of our God will stand forever. And Peter notes in his letter, this is the word that was preached to you with actual words. This is how you were saved. You heard the spoken word. The church father, John Chrysostom, says, have no fear, beloved. The victory is already won. This is the good news. The victory is already won. And it's good news you and I need to declare. It's how we wage war against the devil. We declare Christ has already won. And you and I need to hear it. I need to hear it daily. And we need to hear it from each other, which means it needs to be on our tongues. Paul himself asks for prayer for this very thing in verses 19 through 20. Look what he says. This is remarkable. The great apostle Paul says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. I need the words. I don't know what to say. Help me. Pray for me that I, the great preacher to the Gentiles, would know what to say. So dependent he is on the Lord, so weak and frail he feels his feebleness before the task before him, he pleads for prayer. It's a childlike humility. Help me talk good, God. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to persuade. I need your spirit. And that leads us to the second point. We need not only a spoken word, we need spoken prayers. Prayer is the manner in which we rest our heads in the helmet of salvation, our secure hope. And it's also the means by which we wield the spirit of the sword, the sword of the spirit rather, with which Christ kicks the darkness till it bleeds daylight. What kind of prayers? All kinds. Notice all the alls here. It's all all. Look, look at verse, verses uh, 18 and following. Praying at all times, or sorry, verse, yeah, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that, uh, to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We are to first, the order in, in, the, in the Greek text begins with first all prayers, all, man, all manner of prayers, long, meditative, meandering, and structured prayers, searching prayers. There should be spontaneous and ev- ev- just effusive praise that erupts unexpectedly. There should be gratitude lists that are warmly enumerated in reflection. There should be rehearsed and time-honored prayers that we repeat. There should be desperate cries and even yelps from the people of God. There should be poems of measured prose and contemplative devotion. There should be sincere and intentional supplications right at the moment in small group when someone shares a need, heartfelt requests for others. We should pray all the time. Every season, not just all kinds of prayers, but a prayer for every season, for every opportunity, for every, for every moment. 
Paul tells the Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And everything giving thanks. This is God's will. What's God's will for your life? To pray unceasingly. That's his will for you. (laughs) To breathe prayer, to live in constant dialogue with your heavenly father. This is the normal Christian life. And Paul goes on to add to the Thessalonians right after saying we are to pray unceasingly, do not quench the spirit. How easily we quench the spirit. How easily we quench the spirit with our anxiety and our busyness and our, our distraction. In this way, in this kind of ongoing dialogue, praying at all manner of prayers at all times, we keep ourselves in the central street st- stream of God's love. On the screen, you'll see where Paul, u- or, uh, sorry, Jude uses the same phrase, praying in the spirit, always in the spirit, uh, in his letter to the churches. Jude writes, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there would be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. They have a lot of words and maybe very impressive prayers they pray publicly, but they are empty of the spirit. You in contrast, he says, but you, beloved, build yourselves, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for his mercy. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, it means don't quench the Spirit. Maybe that means speaking in tongues. Maybe that means prophecy. It probably includes those things. But it's much bigger than that. What did Paul, how did Paul describe praying in this, being filled with the Spirit in chapter five, verses 18 through 20? Look at chapter five, verses 18 through 20, when he says, be filled with the Spirit. He describes what a Spirit-filled life looks like. In verse 19, we are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It looks like a singing church, people breaking out in praise and song and gratitude, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as yielding and surrendering to one another. You know what else it looks like? We saw this when we were in Roman, uh, Ephesians 5, 8 through, 5, 18 through 20. It looks like the saints of God in pain crying out, Abba, Father. It looks like groans too deep for words that the Spirit translates into effectual prayers. It looks like yelps. <laughs> Let me give you some examples of Spirit-filled prayers. You ready? You might want to write these down. <laughs> Thank you. Father, help. Son of God, have mercy. We are to pray all manner of prayers, always, at every time, in the Spirit. And we are to pray with all devotion, he says, or all alertness. You see, prayer, prayer is a practice. It's a discipline. 
And man, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. It takes effort to stay alert. To this end, Paul writes, staying alert or staying awake, staying uh, uh, attuned in. Our natural inclination when we, are, when we face difficulty or trial or exhaustion is to do what? Is to tune out, isn't it? It takes the hard work of tuning in to the presence and power of God. Such a discipline of prayer is less stabs in the dark and more craft against the dark. It is an art form, prayer, a learned skill. And yes, a baby can do it, Abba. Question is, can we pray like children? Can we pray like Paul? At all times aware of his dependence. At all times crying out for his father's help and giving his father praise. That takes discipline. You and I have grown old and we need to be disciplined back into childhood, into dependence. It was a a learned skill for even the disciples. The disciples themselves, who were men of no meager religiosity, asked Jesus, Master, teach us how to pray. We don't know how to pray. It's It's a work that is honed and perfected over a lifetime. It is a matter of devotion. I, was, I, took, I had the privilege of taking a prayer retreat this week. And I prayed for many things. I had a long list. I have prayer cards, so the methods I use. Just little index cards with people's prayer requests, prayers for the church, prayers for mission, prayers, everything from the budget to marriages to the Schellenbargers, as we just prayed for them. And I prayed dutifully through my list. And then I quickly retreated back into reading a book or planning out the rest of the spring. How hard it is for me to live in this heart space. My sabbatical coming up here at the end of May is precisely focused on this. Practicing presence. I'm terrible at it. And I'm asking you to pray for me. For three months, I will have daily rhythms of prayer and reflection. And I will stumble and I will fail. And I will retreat. But I need to get back up again and drag myself back into the good, gracious presence of my God. Speaking of praying for me, we're to pray for all saints, Paul says. We're to pray for all. What a great opportunity Riverside provides for us. I'm so grateful for Chris Clausen, who's here most Sunday mornings, praying before the worship service for us. You can join him. Is Chris here? He's not here today. You can join Chris when he is here. And when he's not here, you can pray without him. You can pray for this service. People come in, as Kelly mentioned this in our prayer together as a worship team beforehand. There are people who come in here very wounded and hurt. It took everything they could to cross the threshold of that door. We want to honor them and pray for them. 
We want to pray for our missionaries, and we just did that today, locally as well as abroad. We want to pray for our church plants. We want to pray for City of Refuge. We want to pray for Redeemer in Manchester. We want to pray for our city. You saw Love Cola. We're partnering with churches to serve the city, and we've done that for the last few years. There's also Pray Cola. Dozens and dozens and dozens of Columbia churches are committing to pray every single day, to take turns praying every day for our city, for its for racial reconciliation, for life to be honored, for there to be uh, prosperity so that uh, people have needs met, for, for revival. You can pray every day, as, as Wayne shared, someone is in this sanctuary praying at 7.30, come pray for us, pray for the city with us, prayer for our nation, prayer for our world. We're praying through Ramadan, praying for our Muslim neighbors. This is part of the work, the labor, the devotion of prayer that we are all called to. Paul gives us a great example. In all of his letters, Paul begins the letter with a prayer report. In Ephesians, he says this, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He didn't know many of these Ephesians by name or by face, but he prayed for them nevertheless. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He prays that their their joy would increase by the knowledge as they wear that helmet of salvation. And Christ prays for us. Paul, Paul models for us prayer for the saints and then says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Jesus prays for us. He's sitting at the right hand of majesty, but his work isn't done. His sacrifice has been offered once and for all. With that portion, it is finished. But he ever lives to make intercession for us now. And at the right hand of the Father, the Father who loves to answer the pleas and prayers of his Son, he prays for you and he prays for me. And when we pray for each other, we join our tinny, frail voices to his majestic, bold voice before the Father. One of my favorite moments in the farewell discourse of John's gospel is when Jesus says this to the disciples, in all their fear and confusion, my peace I give you. The peace I have with the Father, which is a perfect peace. I give it to you. You have my peace. It's yours. Pray in that peace. Paul asks for boldness to preach. It's the same word that Scripture elsewhere says we are to boldly enter into his throne room with prayer and petition because we pray with the voice of Christ. That's what it means when Christians pray and we end our prayer with in the name of Jesus. It's not a magical formula. It's a reminder that our prayers join the great and mighty prayers of Christ himself and become beautiful incense before the Father. Paul's example isn't only in praying for the saints, but in asking to be prayed for as one of them. And in order to be prayed for, he knows he needs to be known. So look what he says in verses 21 through 22. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother from Acts 20, and we know Tychicus, he was from Asia, maybe from Ephesus. But he is a faithful minister. He's beloved in the Lord, and he will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. It is a spoken 
Love. You've heard this quote that's been falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. He never said that. Uh, It sounds nice, but he didn't say that. You could parallel it with this, love always, and if necessary, and here I would add, it is almost always necessary, use words. Use your words. You've learned this, right, if you've been married for any length of time. Well, don't you know? Didn't you already know? No, I'm not psychic, right? (laughs) Now, there should be some things we should anticipate about each other, not just in marriage, but in friendship. We should anticipate. But it also helps to know. We don't know unless someone tells us, unless I reveal my heart to you. Paul says that you might know I'm sending a witness and he's a, he's a third person. He doesn't, he's not going to give you like necessarily the version I'm going to want. I'm going to want to polish it up maybe. I'm going to want to make myself look relatively good. Tyking is just going to tell you what he saw. He knows exactly how I'm doing and he's going to communicate what I'm up to, how I'm doing, how I'm struggling and the fears I'm wrestling with. The wounds I carry both physically and spiritually and emotionally. This is remarkable that Paul shares his life with the Ephesians, many of whom he doesn't know by this point. The church is so grown and so multiplied. Paul assumes, or rather he trusts, first of all, that they want to know about him. I've sent him for this very purpose that you may know how I am. You ever talk to somebody and shared something about your life and then you realize, oh, they're not that interested, (laughs) right? Paul's assuming they're that interested. Paul further trusts that knowing him, really knowing him, the Ephesians will still love him. That's our biggest fear. If you know me, you won't love me. So to love me, you can't know me. This is the lie from the devil. As one of my seminary professors used to say, It smells of smoke and it comes from the pit of hell. This lie that if I am known, I cannot be loved. Paul trusts, know me and love me. And not only will they love and honor him, they'll pray for him. Not prayers out of pity, mind you, out of love. They'll pray for him. Paul assumes this and entrusts himself to others because he's entrusted himself first to Christ who knows him thoroughly better than Paul ever can know himself and loves him more than Paul would ever dare to fully dream. Though he tried and he keeps trying. Paul understands that Christ is slowly but surely transforming his church to be, that is to say, to love like himself. So he trusts himself to these Ephesians he doesn't know by name. In fact, Paul assumes that they can only really love him if, in fact, they know him. Otherwise, they don't love him. They love an advertisement for him. If he opens his heart and with his words, only then, and he tells them about himself, only then will they love him, really love him. Isn't it interesting that God has so designed our redemption that so many aspects of its realization in our lives will not be experienced apart from the prayers of the saints? Look, I believe Christ has secured salvation for every one of his people. I also simultaneously believe that apart from the prayers of the saints, none of us are getting there. It's how he designed it. 
apart from us being known, really known by God and yes, by others, and in being authentically known, be sincerely loved. And in being sincerely loved, being faithfully prayed for, only then, only then can we endure. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You and I are lifted up to heaven by our friends. Isn't that a wonderful economy that God would forge our redemption in a network of mutual love and dependence in an endless chatter between heaven and earth? It's almost as if Jesus is making us like himself, a loving, praying Messiah. Love is the great theme of our letter to the Ephesians. To be more specific, it is the love of a community that's been forgiven and loved first by God through Christ. That is in turn forgiving and loving one another in their life together as they eagerly maintain their blood-bought unity. Such embodied love, Paul says, announces to the dread powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that their doom is sure that their manipulative and malevolent reign over humanity has come to an end in Christ Jesus. How appropriate then for Paul to end his letter by focusing on love, our love for each other and our love for Jesus. Look how he ends again in verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible, with love undying. The whole letter, it seems, has been Paul placing the glorious helmet of salvation firmly upon our heads and commenting how well it suits us. That fits you nicely. And then at the same time, plunging the sword of the Spirit into our chest with God's very words, his very words of Paul penetrating with surgical precision our thick skin in order to heal us and to fill us with the light and love of Christ. And now he closes in a manner very similar to how he opens the letter with the words of blessing, a prayer of benediction, a concrete expression of God's love and his for us. And so now we rightly express our love for Christ in words of praise. And in a moment, we'll hear words of blessing from Jesus himself back to us. Spoken love. And so, without any further ado, let's get on with it. I'm going to invite the band back up. We've got some singing to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that your word is spoken to us, that you are a particular God who speaks particularly to our particular hearts, and you have changed us. Lord, continue to transform us by the sword of your Spirit. As we praise you now in the fullness of your Spirit, pour your Spirit out on us. May we not grieve your Holy Spirit, Lord, but may we rather live in your good pleasure and sing.